Big Bangs on the Edge of the Universe, this week on Planetary Radio. Hi everyone, welcome to Public Radio's travel show that takes you to the final frontier. I'm Matt Kaplan. Sometimes a story bursts upon us with such fury that we just can't ignore it. Such is the case with gamma ray bursts, the biggest bangs since the Big Bang itself. And now we know what sets them off. Stay with us for a conversation with Neil Garrels, Principal Investigator for the SWIFT Satellite. SWIFT is watching for the next of these cosmic convulsions even as we speak. Bruce Betts is off hobnobbing with his fellow wizards. We'll get him on the phone for this week's What's Up visit, including the latest space trivia contest winner. Time for all the space news that fits. After 900,000 hours of work and over 120 modifications, NASA has turned Endeavour's lights back on. Crews cheered as the shuttle's electronic systems were powered up last week. It may still be over a year before the ship returns to space. And speaking of return to space, it appears that Hurricane Katrina may have delayed the next shuttle flight a bit more, from March of 2006 to possibly May. The good news is that engineers think they have another fix for those foam-shedding external tanks. Thanks to listener Craig Journay for pointing us to these last two stories. Warning, Earth's oceans are dangerous to your health. Or at least they were a billion and a half years ago. NASA exobiologists have found evidence that sulfur compounds would have poisoned any advanced life, but those same compounds made a delicious primordial soup for some microbes. Still more from NASA, the space agency has named former astronaut Walt Cunningham as its latest ambassador of exploration. He flew on Apollo 7's Earth-orbiting mission, the first to send back live television pictures from space. Cunningham was handed his very own moon rock, which he promptly donated to the Frontiers of Flight Museum in Dallas. Our Lord, or rather Lady of the Rings, comes to us from Saturn this week. I'll be back with Neil Garrels right after Emily. Hi, I'm Emily Lakdawalla with questions and answers. A listener asked, How densely packed are Saturn's rings? Saturn's rings are often likened to the asteroid belt around the Sun, and both are made of individual particles orbiting a large mass. But while the asteroid belt is so sparse that spacecraft can sail through it without worrying about hitting anything, Saturn's rings are quite dense. They are dense enough that collisions between particles are very common. The frequent collisions have broken any parent bodies into relatively small pieces. Particles in Saturn's main A and B rings are between the size of your fist and the size of a house. Near the edges of the main rings, the particle sizes shrink, the size of a bean or smaller. The frequent collisions also tend to average out the orbital motions of the particles, bringing their orbits down into an exceedingly flat plane exactly aligned with Saturn's equator. If you were sitting on a ring particle in Saturn's A or C rings, you would see particles everywhere around you, keeping pace with you, but you could look straight through the ring plane to see black space beyond. What you'd see in Saturn's densest B ring would be quite different. Stay tuned to Planetary Radio for more. Neil Garrels watches for events that may have happened before life formed on Earth, and in some cases, before there was an Earth. 
The principal investigator for the SWIFT satellite was a key presenter in a NASA press conference last week. He announced amazing discoveries regarding gamma-ray bursts. These explosions release the equivalent of a star's lifetime energy output in mere seconds. No wonder they can be seen from billions of light years away. And as we learned from Neil, there's good reason not to get a whole lot closer. We spoke immediately after he had returned from Germany to the Goddard Space Flight Center in Maryland. Neil, that was quite an explosive announcement that uh, you and your team uh, got to make uh, last week. Oh, yeah, indeed. We're, we're uh, tremendously excited by this new discovery that uh, the SWIFT satellite has made. This recent one has been conjun- in conjunction also with uh, another NASA satellite called the HETI mission and uh, also with over 20 different ground-based observatories and observations. Quite a bit of coordinated astronomy here. What is it about SWIFT that makes it uniquely qualified to find and train instruments uh, to observe these events that happen very, very quickly? SWIFT is designed specifically to study gamma-ray bursts. They're very brief flashes of gamma rays. Uh, they occur about uh, once a day in random places across the sky, and they typically last some tens of seconds. And the SWIFT satellite was specifically designed to, to study these bursts. It has a, a gamma-ray detector on it, some detectors that whenever a gamma-ray hits them, they make a little electronic pulse, and we can, we can tell. We can actually count the number of gamma-rays that are, that are hitting it. And that instrument um, determines the position of the burst roughly on the sky. The real new innovation of SWIFT, which is actually where we got the name, is that when that position's been ter- determined, the uh, satellite computer reorients the whole spacecraft, the whole satellite, to point two other instruments at the position of the burst, and that's an X-ray telescope and an optical telescope. So very smart spacecraft, and it, and it does all this autonomously. It does it autonomously, and it does it rapidly. That's where SWIFT comes from. I also read that SWIFT puts out the word to the astronomy community on Earth. I mean, did you get like a, a, an instant message or a cell phone call from your spacecraft? Uh, not, only, not only myself, the whole SWIFT team uh, gets this message. And we also put that message out on the Internet for observers all around the world to train their telescopes at the burst. Now, for our, for our team, it isn't so much to go look with another telescope, but, but we want to get on the computer and look and see what we've got right away. So it actually pages our cell phones about a third of the time. You know, they go off in the middle of the night. Of course. And so we're often get, getting awakened, and, and of course it's fun to rush down and see what's just happened. And because uh, SWIFT alerts the astronomy community, that's, I assume, how these land-based instruments are also able to uh, turn their big lenses toward this event in the sky. That's exactly right. There are some specialty telescopes that all by themselves just take that signal coming on the Internet Hmm. and and repoint themselves. And then there are bigger telescopes like uh, the Keck telescope in Hawaii and the very large telescope in Chile that... uh, get repointed by an observer, but they can do it quite rapidly within a, a matter of, uh, of minutes to an hour. And this quick response was uh, key to the discovery, to the announcement that was uh, just made. That's right. SWIFT makes a lot of observations on board, you know, the data that we get from our three instruments. That was very important for understanding these, these new short bursts. 
but we learned even a lot more from the ground-based observations. Hmm. Well, what you discovered, apparently, is that uh, these bursts are quite cataclysmic events taking place, uh, at least uh, so far, the ones that have been found so far, a long, long ways away from our solar system. That's right. There, there are actually two different discoveries we've made. Uh, we've, they've both been, been announced within the last uh, two or three weeks. One, one thing, actually the first thing that we announced was a big surprise. Most of these bursts occur far away in the universe. That was known even before SWIFT. They can be billions of light years away. It's, it's awesome how much energy gets produced in the explosions that, that make these gamma ray bursts since they're so far away. But on uh, September the 4th, we detected a burst that looked different than other ones. It had a, a longer time profile, was very faint and, and hard to detect. And by the time we were done understanding it over the next three days, we realized that it was one of the most distant objects that had ever been uh, seen in the universe. How far? How many light years? So it was... It was 12.8 billion light years away. Wow. And so as, as our audience, our sophisticated audience, of course, knows, you were looking at an event that took place that far back in the past as well. That's right. It's like a time machine. Those gamma ray photons, those particles of gamma rays, you know, it's light, but think of them as photon particles, have been traveling uh, toward us for 12.8 billion years. They were produced very early times in the universe. The universe was only uh, 800 million years old at that time. You know, that sounds like a big number, but it was such a small fraction of the time since uh, from now to the Big Bang, so it was very early. We're probably going to have to take a break before we can talk about what you've actually discovered about the origin of uh, these gamma, gamma ray bursts. Uh, a question that I've been dying to ask, what would happen if one of these took place in our neighborhood, let's say, within, oh, 10, 20 light years? These are so powerful. If, if there were one that, that nearby, it would essentially wipe the atmosphere right off the Earth. Wow. Now, the probability of that happening is very small, uh, infinitesimal. But the probability of there being one within our own galaxy, let's say, you know, some thousands of light years away, that, it, that gets to be a little larger. There probably has been one during the last few hundred million years when there was life on Earth that was near enough that it disrupted the ozone in some way and may have had an effect on life. Even from a distance of, let's say, hundreds of light years, or perhaps thousands? At ten light years, you would wipe the atmosphere out. Mm -hmm. At thousands, you would disrupt the ozone, you know, have a significant reduction in the ozone for a period of a, a year or two, which would, you know, that would affect life. And when you get into the range in between, it, it kind of varies. Hmm. Well, let's come back in a minute and talk about uh, what you have found, what we can now have, state with confidence is actually happening when these, <laughs> calling them large explosions, uh, there's no way to state how big these are without making it an understatement, I think. But when we come back from this quick break, we'll pick up our conversation with Dr. Neil Garrels the principal investigator for the SWIFT satellite, who uh, now has a pretty good idea of what is causing these gamma-ray bursts far away in our universe. We'll be right back. This is Buzz Aldrin. When I walked on the moon, I knew it was just the beginning of humankind's great adventure in the solar system. That's why I'm a member of the Planetary Society, the world's largest space interest group. The Planetary Society is helping to explore Mars, 
We're tracking near-Earth asteroids and comets. We sponsor the search for life on other worlds, and we're building the first-ever solar sail. We didn't just build it. We attempted to put that first solar sail in orbit, and we're going to try again. You can read about all our exciting projects and get the latest space exploration news in-depth at the Society's exciting and informative website, planetary.org. You can also preview our full-color magazine, The Planetary Report. It's just one of our many member benefits. Want to learn more? Call us at 1-877-PLANETS. That's toll-free, 1-877-752-6387. The Planetary Society, exploring new worlds. Welcome back to Planetary Radio, where our guest is Dr. Neil Garrels, the principal investigator for the SWIFT satellite. He works out of the Goddard Space Flight Center, NASA's Goddard Center, of course, in Greenbelt, Maryland. Neil, we were just talking about, I said, I don't know how we would even express how big these explosions are, but I guess you want to take a stab at it. How how can you put these into terms that we might appreciate just how big a boom these are? There's a couple of different ways to think about it. First of all, they are the most powerful explosions in the universe since, since the Big Bang. So this is, this is the top banana. <laughs> and it, uh, there's as much radiation, there's as much energy that comes at us in this few-second pulse of gamma rays as the sun puts out at all wavelengths over its whole lifetime. Wow. So that's, that's one way to look at it. And another way is uh, if you took a, a star like the sun and you could turn all of its mass into E equals MC squared energy. That would be about the that would be a little bit more than the energy of a gamma ray burst, but it gives you about this the right scale. That is it, it, you know, even at that, it is beyond belief. Um, what have you discovered could cause such a cataclysm? Most of them are in this long burst category. And and then later we'll talk about the short bursts, each of which have we believe now have completely different origins and mm-hmm. causes. The, the longer bursts, this uh, this very distant burst from September the 4th was in this long burst category. We believe are now are caused by the collapse of massive stars. Take a star that's, say, 40 times as, as massive as our sun. When it reaches the end of its life, it burns out its nuclear fuel in the middle, and then gravity wins out. These big, massive stars collapse. Even before gamma ray burst studies, people knew about stars ending their life in explosion called supernovae. Mm-hmm. But we think with the gamma ray bursts, the core of the star collapses to a black hole. And then all of this gas falling in on the black hole produces this huge amount of energy. And we believe that's what causes the gamma ray bursts. The longer variety, which I take it are the ones that last roughly more than two seconds. Right. That's that's the dividing time, about two seconds. A typical long burst will last maybe 20 seconds or so. Hmm. That's still very fleeting. <laughs> yeah. What about the others? They're less than two seconds, which are, what, about 30% of these bursts? Yeah, about 30%. We've just, uh, for the very first time, gotten, I'd say, the beginnings of understanding of, of what causes the short burst. Uh, we were able to image the first short burst just in May of this year, and, and now there have been three or four of them that both SWIFT and, and I mentioned this HETI satellite have, have imaged. Uh-huh. All of these bursts you see come from galaxies, and we can see where in the galaxy and what type of galaxy they are to try to determine what kind of stars are making the explosion. So you've discovered that these shorter bursts are not caused by collapsing stars, 
but uh, still a, a, a pretty impressive event. Right. They're, they're also very energetic, maybe a little less energy than the large bursts, but, but right up there with, uh, with supernovae and, and, you know, the huge explosions. The short bursts are coming from galaxies that don't have massive stars in them. That was our first hint that they were completely different. Hmm. And now the more we've looked, we believe with fairly high confidence that they're coming from a binary pair of stars, not just any kind of stars, but old, condensed. We think of them as neutron stars, is one, one type that is a good prospect. And as they orbit each other in, in this binary system, they lose energy from their orbit by gravitational waves that come out slowly over, over a period of billions of years. The orbit gets uh, closer and closer, and then the final part goes in seconds, where the actual hard stars collide with each other. It's uh, it's a big explosion. We think that's what makes a short burst. So that's a neutron star and a neutron star, and I, I read that though some of these may be a neutron star colliding with a black hole. Yes. We, we know so little about how many black holes there are in the universe versus how many neutron stars there are. You can't predict ahead of time. There may be different signatures for a black hole neutron star binary or a neutron star neutron star binary. I think it'll take some more time to sort that out, but we have some preliminary evidence that one of these short bursts was a black hole Hmm. neutron star merger. There is, in fact, on your website, the SWIFT website, and we will put up a link to that uh, site at uh, our website, planetary.org, uh, there is an animation of exactly this kind of event taking place, and it is cosmically terrifying to watch. I know. Isn't that an awesome animation? <laughs> it really is. And we think it's, that's really what, what it looks like. Uh, we did the best we could, you know, consulting uh, the brightest minds to try to make that animation look realistic. Hmm. And, uh, and basically what you see in that animation is as these, the last few orbits of these stars, they they're tearing each other apart. And the amazing thing is that when all is said and done, these two stars have collapsed down into a black hole. It, the gamma ray burst is like the, the birth cry of a black hole that's, that's just been born. So it's not just the black hole that was part of the collision getting bigger, if you will. It's really considered a new black hole. Right. In the case of the two neutron stars orbiting each other, it's a new black hole that mm, was born. Yeah. If it's a black hole neutron star system, then it still ends up being a, a bigger black hole. Where does your research go from here? You uh, stay on the lookout for these, I bet. Yes. SWIFT will be in orbit for, t- for 10 years, and, uh, and we detect about 100 bursts a year. Each one is different. Uh, I'm guessing that we'll find bursts of other types that we haven't even thought about. This is a, a fairly uh, young field yet. Well, we will hope that uh, most of those phone calls from uh, Swift uh, come to you at uh, better times than uh, when you're uh, <laughs> when you're fast asleep. But uh, it is very exciting stuff. If these collisions resulting in these bursts were more common in the early history of the universe, and if they are so damaging to uh, planets that are uh, fairly nearby, I would guess that these bursts may have played a pretty important role in the chance that uh, life developed, at least early on, elsewhere in in the universe. They could indeed have done that. There has been quite a bit of discussion and debate about that. But exactly as you say, they they may have been more common uh, in the early universe. 
they, they serve as a kind of sterilizing uh, factor for the region of the galaxies that they're in. Any planets in that area, you know, would have, if there were life on them, uh, they would have that disrupted. It certainly would have an effect on their atmosphere. Mm. Well, then we will hope that you continue to get these bursts to uh, study, but that we don't get one too close to home. And uh, I wish you great luck as, uh, as you continue these observations. Okay, thank you, Matt. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you very much, Neil. Neil Garrels has been our guest. He is a principal investigator for the SWIFT satellite, working from the Goddard Space Flight Center, one of the main NASA centers, of course. He has been talking to us about gamma-ray bursts, about which we have apparently learned more in just the last few years than uh, was known in all of human history. We'll be back with a bit more history for you, a bit more recent history, as part of What's Up, our weekly visit with Bruce Betts, right after this. I'm Emily Lakdawalla, back with Q&A. What would the view from a particle in Saturn's B-ring be like? First of all, if you tried to look through the densest part of the B-ring to the other side, you wouldn't be able to see it. The middle of the B-ring is so densely packed that it is optically thick, meaning that light and radio waves cannot pass through it to the other side. If you tried to look down through the ring, your view would be blocked by infinite numbers of particles. An astronaut could scramble from one particle to the next with ease. If light can't get through from one side of the ring to the other, then individual particles can't make the passage either. Any B-ring particle on a path that attempted to cross the ring plane would be stymied by the other particles in its way. That means that B-ring particles always stay on either the sunlit side or the shadowed side of Saturn's ring plane. One side of the B-ring is sunlit and hot for half of Saturn's year, while the other side is shadowed and cold. In this way, the B-ring actually behaves almost as though it were a solid disk orbiting Saturn. Got a question about the universe? Send it to us at planetaryradio at planetary.org. And now here's Matt with more Planetary Radio. Time for What's Up on Planetary Radio. We are joined by Bruce Betts, the Director of Projects for the Planetary Society, who for the first time in ages uh, is not able to talk to us face-to-face. We're just uh, ear-to-ear today. I uh, have you on the phone. Bruce, where are you? I am in Arlington, Virginia. I am attending the Outer Planets Assessment Group meeting. You're assessing those outer planets, eh? Yes, I am. <laughs> well, I hope they all pass, and uh, I hope that you can tell us a little bit more about that a little bit later. Me too. <laughs> You're tired, aren't you? But in the meantime, <laughs> I am. In the meantime... What's up? Uh, what's up in the night sky? We've got, of course, Mars just looming large and beautiful and rising uh, around 9, look in the east, uh, and then by midnight it's it's up high in the sky. Can't miss it these days. Very bright looks like a very bright orangish star, and that would be Mars. You can also uh, check out Venus in the evening sky, low in the west after sunset, looking like a very bright whitish star. And then in the pre-dawn sky, you can catch uh, Saturn in the east, looking like a not-so-bright white star. And uh, for those of you uh, hanging out in areas in or bordering the Pacific, look for a partial lunar eclipse on October 17th. 
On to this week in space history. This is the 25th anniversary, the 25th birthday of the Very Large Array in New Mexico, a set of 27 radio telescopes that are used to study the universe. That starred with Jodie Foster in the movie Contact. They did a, they did a fair amount of the filming there, I think. Yeah, they, it took a while to train the antennas to act. <laughs> well, they could say that about many of us. They can listen great, but they didn't hit their lines very well. <laughs> okay, on to human space update. We've got five people up on the International Space Station as we record this. Uh, Expedition 11, Sergei Krikalev and John Phillips will be headed home on Monday, October 10th, along with spaceflight participant Gregory Olson, a private citizen who's up there for a few days. And meanwhile, William MacArthur and Valerie Tokarev will take over as Expedition 12, and will be up there for about six months. On to... Random Space Fact! Just can't help but go to those outer planets. Pluto. I got the spiffy fact off of uh, the New Horizons mission website. New Horizons, a Pluto mission, launching January 11th, they hope. Our first visit to Pluto at about uh, 1,500 miles in diameter. That's about 2,400 kilometers across. Pluto would fit between where I am, approximately Washington, D.C., and Denver, Colorado. Oh, I love those. I love those little common terms of measurement uh, things, you know, measuring, measuring things in football fields or, or bread boxes, you know? It, well, it'd be a lot more bread boxes. Uh-huh. But, yeah. On to the trivia contest we asked you last time around. We asked you, what was the first Japanese Earth-orbiting satellite? What was the name of the first Japanese Earth-orbiting satellite? How'd we do, Matt? There are a whole bunch of people out there who apparently want a Planetary Radio t-shirt, and uh, so we're seeing uh, more entries just about every week. One of them came from Joel Tatham. Joel Tatham of, get this, Grundisberg, Suffolk in the United Kingdom. Joel says Japan's first satellite was the Osumi, launched on February 11, 1970. It re-entered the atmosphere in 2003, and he said he was surprised to read about the scarcity of instruments, but that it was probably just a glorified payload. There you go. I think he got it right. He sure did. And for this next time around, you too can win a Planetary Radio t-shirt by answering this question. Back to the VLA. What is the diameter of each of the 27 radio telescopes that make up a very large array. To answer this question, get into the trivia contest. Go to planetary.org slash radio. Follow the directions there. And hey, could, uh, could you do us a favor and tell us where you hear us? Because we're getting out there so many places, we want to know. Uh, thank you very much. So you want to hear about Outer Planets? Well, before we do, I'll tell them that they want to get their entry into us by the 17th. October 17, Monday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time. And, yeah, please, take a minute or so. I, I know you're uh, tired there after a hard day of conference going, but uh, tell us uh, tell us what's going on. Well, we, uh, we heard uh, updates today on the two selected Outer Planets missions, as well as the one that's out there right now, Cassini, of course, orbiting Saturn, New Horizons launching in January off to Pluto-Charon, and then hopefully on to Kuiper Belt objects. And the Juno mission recently selected, which will be a Jupiter polar orbiter to launch towards the end of this decade, all of them proceeding nicely. And then there were discussions of exotic farther future things, like missions back to Titan around Saturn, and uh, missions to Europa. And in fact, Planetary Society is getting geared up to work on various aspects of trying to advocate for and facilitate a Europa mission 
to uh, Jupiter's moon that may have a subsurface ocean. Excellent. Good for us. Sounds like fun. A lot going on in the solar system. There sure is. Very interesting. I think we're done. Say goodnight, Bruce. All right, everybody. Go out there, look up the night sky, and think about obelisks. I know I am. (laughs) Thank you, and good night. He's Bruce Betts. He's the Director of Projects for the Planetary Society, and he joins us each week, this time from Arlington, Virginia, for What's Up. Back next time with more true adventures from our best of all universes, and be sure to join us in two weeks when author Ray Bradbury returns to Planetary Radio just before he receives the Thomas Paine Memorial Award for Advancement of Human Exploration of Mars. Our show is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California. You can reach us at planetaryradio at planetary.org. Say it fast three times. Planetary, planetary, planetary. Have a great week, everyone. Planetary.